You're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. All right, you're listening to the Emerald News Podcast. I'm joined today in the studio by Scott Greenstone and Cooper Green. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it going? Could you explain a little bit about what you both do at the Emerald? I'm Cooper, and I'm the print managing editor at the Emerald. I uh, oversee print production, used to be an opinion columnist, um, but now I watch the paper get made twice a week um, and do some editing on stories, put together cover stories, and uh, make sure everything looks good design-wise. I'm Scott. I am the managing producer at the Emerald, so what that means we're still sort of figuring out, but I kind of I work on covers as well. We sort of work on them together. Um, and I focus a lot on the website, um, especially trying to kind of push, uh, online first content. Um, so like we did a cover on Weezer this last week and that was like kind of online had a different presentation than in the paper. So that's kind of what I focus on. And you guys both wrote the two cover stories for this week and they both have to do with native American issues. Can you talk a little bit about um, why you're doing that this week and kind of how you both came to these stories. Yeah, Scott, you want to start? Yeah, Native American Heritage Day is on Friday, and there's been a lot of conversations on campus about race and identity and kind of uh, what it means to have dialogues about that, and we really wanted to show that we're very in support of um, uh basically encouraging voices for marginalized communities. And so that's what this effort sort of was. We had two issues to put out on Thanksgiving week, and we didn't want to have a sort of Native American story on Monday or Wednesday because we were afraid, you know, that it wouldn't really have the reach that we intended just because it's a little bit of a shorter, like, you know. Um, Turnaround. Right, like, like exposure time. So we decided to do both issues on that. Yeah, I think it's really important, um, especially on a campus that's not not very diverse, to kind of um, make those voices louder from uh, marginalized communities like Native Americans. And can you guys do like a quick nut graph or like a summary of what your stories are? Sure. Um, my story is about uh, Megan Sigvana Topcock. She's a Native law student at the UVO, and um, she is Native Alaskan and um, kind of grew up with a father who was disconnected from that culture, um, sort of because of the way that Native Americans were treated uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and she kind of felt like there was a piece missing from, uh, from, from her childhood growing up without that culture. Um, and she attended Dartmouth College and reconnected with those roots and found a lot of um, other Native people that she connected with and now has this really um, passionate desire to return to her um, her father's village in Alaska and uh, and other native places in Alaska and make life better for those people through the uh, education she's gotten down the lower 48. And my story is on Native American language loss and specifically the Northwest Indian Language Institute and educators and native uh, scholars working there to revitalize languages that were basically persecuted either into oblivion or almost into oblivion by European American expansion. And this isn't the first story you've done on Native American language loss, right? It's not. I was working for the News Review in Roseburg this summer, and that's when I sort of discovered this whole issue that I had never thought about before. I was doing a story on the Cow Creek Upqua Indian tribe. I think I said that right. 
and uh, their efforts. They had just discovered that their language had been saved after a hundred years of thinking it was gone, and they were um, teaching it to some of their youngest kids, and basically they were step one on that process. And Neely here was helping them, so that's how I found out about it. And Neely is the primary source for your article, right? Yeah, it's it's about it focuses on some of their teachers and uh, who are native um, and students. Oh yeah, sorry. And Neely's an acronym, right? Right. <laughs> North. A... Sorry, Northwest Indian Language Institute. Okay. Uh, yeah, and and so I, I focus essentially on some of the students who are studying languages, and usually they are their own languages, like. Um, J.C. Hall is kind of the main focus of my story, and she is uh, wanting to focus her doctorate. She's moving toward a doctorate in Tututni, which is her native language. Um, she is related to um, Native Americans that settled around the uh, Rogue River in southern Oregon. You said you started uh, working on Native American stories in Roseburg? Yeah. Roseburg? How yeah. did that come about? Is that your editor assigned you that, or...? No, I I had a good relationship. One of my first stories was um, the Cow Creek tribe's philanthropy, and I randomly um, met just a very talkative, wonderful PR person for the tribe, and well, I guess communications director for the tribe, and uh, she was trying to get me to do stories, and um, I just sort of stumbled on this one. Um, I was just talking to them about, you know, their language and they were talking about oh yeah so we sort of recently discovered that our language was had been saved when we thought it was actually dead and their language had been saved in the Smithsonian um, by linguists who had come almost a hundred years before and just recorded some of the last fluent speakers of their language just talking um, and telling stories and things like that and it was really incredible and I was sort of like wait wait have we written about that and they were like no so it was kind of crazy yeah I think something that's really struck me working on these stories um, I did some work with Native American um, I did some journalism with Native Americans in uh, May last year and um, something that really struck me is like how um, how prominent they are I guess in a way that we don't necessarily see um, I mean like in your article you talk about how there were up to 500 languages at one point and um and i think there are i want to say more than 560 recognized tribes um and i mean you know that's that's just federally recognized so and this is something that um one of the professors i talked to for this story one of megan's professors brought up is that there's sort of this um i can't remember exactly what he called it but sort of a uh shadow a shadow organization um, that's kind of what he referred to the tribes as in this way that they're sort of um, overshadowed by the U.S. government and they're sort of um, existing in the background and that there's this big sort of push from natives to, to push them back to the forefront. Oh, yeah. That's really it, interesting. It's a fascinating, I mean, Jason Yonkers at the university is our government to government sort of advisor. Like it's basically the things that he works in are how does the University of Oregon communicate with a sovereign nation that is a tribe within right, the United right. States? Right, right. Because I mean, you know, they do. They need like ambassadors. It's they're very different cultures, and um, they they you know they have they have to communicate between each other between the two governments between leaders, um, and that's why I think places like the Longhouse on campus are so important because those are um, 
um, like home bases for a government, essentially for um, representatives of of a people and a culture. So you had to sort of go for it. You had to sort of uh, immerse yourself. I know that you did the story that sort of laid the groundwork for this one in May or yeah, last spring. Mm-hmm. So you had to sort of like get to know the students firsthand, and that's something I haven't done. So I'm curious, like, what was that like? That was really hard. <laughs> um, that was definitely like some of the toughest journalism I've had to do because I did a lot of profiles before that but nothing that was so um, out of my comfort zone and out of what I knew Um, I mean I stepped into that um, I stepped into those stories like pretty much knowing nothing about Native American culture Um, but I had a pretty intense desire to like figure out what was going on and figure out what I can do as a white male to um, to help or to get out of the way so they so they can help themselves really, um, and so part of that you know I I tried to be very passive at first in reporting. Um, I sat in on longhouse meetings and um, sort of just listened and uh, tried to get a sense of um, of what of what I didn't understand and what I could do to understand it and who I should talk to. Um, and you know, I I tried to be as respectful as possible and understand that um, I am the descendant um, and you know part of a culture that has oppressed this group of people for hundreds of years, and you know that they don't necessarily want me coming in there and telling a story for them. Um, so it was hard to kind of balance that line between um, wanting to help but not wanting to treat them like they couldn't help themselves. Can you talk a little bit about what the stories are that you wrote last year? Yeah. Um, really, the, the, the very beginning was uh, I wrote a pretty abridged version of this profile um, on Megan. Uh, she was in a uh, play last year. I think it was called Sila. Um, and it was a play about uh, Native people um, in Upper Canada and Alaska. Um, and it was just sort of a wild coincidence, really, that the theater department decided to put on this production, um, really based on something almost obscure in, in culture in Eugene, Oregon, um, and that there happened to be a native Alaskan who wanted to try out for a part. Um, so she was in this play and I sort of focused in that original story on, um, what it was like for her, uh, to find this little piece of her culture at the UVO. Um, and that kind of led into a bigger story on NASU, the Native American Student Union here, um, which is a group of, uh, it's loosely organized, but probably 60 to 70 people attend meetings, um, during like the busier times of the school year. Um, and that's just really a coalition of Native American students who want to be around other Native Native American students. Um, and they meet in the longhouse. I kind of learned what that was. Um, and that the, the, it's this very like culturally centric building on the edge of campus that really you might miss because it is so um, it's really built to I think look like um, like it belongs on the earth rather than buildings like Global Scholars Hall or <laughs> the law library which are right next to it that look like um, you know white people built them um, <laughs> I would but, bet money that you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it was but that that story focused more on um, sort of the Native American uh, place at UFO um, and how such as such a small group here can kind of find ways to connect with a culture that is 
so very different from the one that is kind of put together by all these other people at UVO. And so now that you've done the second story on Megan, it's Megan, right? Yeah. Um, what kind of did you learn this time? What stuck out to you the most? Um, I definitely, I focused more on what she wanted to bring back, I guess. Um, in that in that original cover story, I kind of looked at um, how how Native students were finding places to um, to get a piece of kind of their culture here. And this story focuses more on the bigger picture, I'd say, um, even though it is centered on one person, but but kind of tries to broaden that up to look at um, how Native students can bring things back, um, sort of the ways that uh, that Native Americans are still oppressed um, in an almost subconscious way. Um, a big part of this for me, sort of like kind of an epiphany moment, was, um, I mean, there is, there is this huge history with substance abuse and Native Americans. I think the statistic was um, Native Americans are five times more likely to die of uh, alcohol-related deaths than um, white people. And... And sort of like trying to find a source for that, really what I came to um, in discussion with Megan is that uh, basically for hundreds of years, um, the United States government has been trying to to fit Native American culture into the mold that they have for everyone else, um, into the mold of like Western culture and European societies, um, and sort of forcing Native Americans into these molds uh, has has almost destroyed their culture entirely um, because they don't fit in in our traditional sense um, of a mold and trying to make them fit really just uh, it puts them in a place of identity loss where um, a lot of Native Americans just don't understand uh, where they are or how they can fit in um, and and the culture is almost displaced so is it kind of like the assimilationist thinking and kind of mindset in the United States has left a lot of. Yeah, yeah, just just sort of the idea of um, uh, uh, the United States uh, government and um, white people here, you know, have this idea of what is normal and trying to fit a culture um, as different as Native American cultures into that idea of normalcy. It it just it just doesn't work. And forcing that on them, it just uh, it, it destroys culture. It you know it, like Scott wrote about it, it wrecks languages. It um, and it and it gives individuals a sense of not knowing who they are or what they're doing. I also really like that you said cultures because you said earlier there's what like 500 and some different yeah, tribes yeah. there were, and it's not like go to any city in America and it's completely different from the city next to it. Like, can you imagine that many? Different? Absolutely. Um, Scott, do you want to? I was gonna say it's just really uh, perfect for this, for this like moment. Is this quote that I came across when I was researching everything? And Kenneth Hale was this linguist and language advocate, and he said, uh, "Every language lost is like dropping a bomb on the Louvre. <laughs> That's how much culture you're losing because." when when you have you know a language is a connection to a culture there are certain things that I couldn't describe to you in French about my culture and someone who is French couldn't describe to you because they wouldn't have that word in English mm -hmm. it just doesn't translate 
And that's what is happening except with hundreds of languages and hundreds of cultures. And I think um, a big part of this, what I was talking about, pushing them into these molds is um, is is grouping those cultures into into one uh, Native American brand. And um, you know, like you said, they they different Native American cultures are so different um, that it, that that just doesn't work. And you know, in the lower forty-eight states, the United States at one point tried to kind of push these people into um, being farmers, and in Alaska. Um, which is a very totally different situation entirely. Um, I think it was 1971 forced this act in that uh, really pushed Native Americans to 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 change from reservations and tribes into corporations, um, and a lot of them did. And and in doing that, were essentially tricked into losing jurisdiction over um, over kind of their own sovereign states. Um, and, and, you know, also a loss of identity because they, you know, they weren't businessmen and they were kind of forced into that role. These stories are so interesting and I really like them together as kind of a package to talk about these different issues. But like, there's obviously so many more stories that you can tell that have to do with these issues. Do you guys have any more, um, Native American stories that you were going to pursue in the future? There's, um... I'm I'm sort of working on a podcast for the um, Crossings Institute, which is a group out out of uh, the University of Oregon, um, on this whole issue. And one piece that I wasn't able to include in the um, in in this piece because it didn't really connect to the University of Oregon, but I do hope to include in that podcast is you were talking about um, theater and and um, sort of the the play that they put on here. Yeah. There's I discovered this. Um, this group of people in Alaska, and actually this is sort of a trend in Alaska among Native American revitalization communities, to take Shakespeare plays and translate large chunks of them into Native languages like, I talked to this guy uh, uh, named Alan Hayton who works with the Doyon Foundation. He's a Gwich'in Athabascan um, Native, and he, he took King Lear, played King Lear himself, except he translated it um, into basically their, I'm not going to butcher the word, but Chief Lear. And um, he and Cordelia, sort of the favored daughter, like they speak Guichin themselves, but there's also English spoken in the play. Oh, wow. But basically just taking part of that and then like performing it. And it's an incredible, incredible idea. Have you seen it or seen them rehearse or anything? I've seen videos. It, it's all happened in Alaska, Wow. This these productions. So that's one thing. Yeah, I think culture stories like that are really important. For me, um, I, I don't have anything specific in mind that I want to follow up. Um, in terms of Native American stories, but I do just want to um, make this routine, um, make it make it regular that we are representing those that have been underrepresented, um, and you know, not making this a special occasion that we're writing about Native Americans, but making it part of um, what we do every day when you know we write stories all the time about quarterbacks or um, ASUL or administration. We should also be writing these stories. I love that. And, and I would just add that I, we wanted to stray away, and our editor-in-chief, Dahlia, was said this when we started. We don't want to have just two token stories about Native Americans. What we really felt that both of these stories were about is Native Americans reclaiming something that was taken from them. And so it really is a deeper thing than, than that. But I love what you're saying as well. Yeah, and and I think um, I think it's good that I, I think both these stories can have a positive light um, for something that is hard and harsh for these cultures. Um, but I think it is good to be positive because um, 
all the people I've talked to are optimistic, and I think I think things have gotten a lot better. Um, and it's good to look at that sometimes. Nice. Well, if you guys have any final thoughts, please share those and also tell people where they can find you on Twitter or other social media. I don't really have any final thoughts. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CLYGreen, and I don't post that much, but I should, and I'll try. Yeah, uh, final thoughts. Essentially, we are two white guys talking about you know, our thoughts about who our race has oppressed. And, you know, part of me feels um, uh, bad, but I, I do realize, I think, I think it's good that we be sensitive, you know, sort of uh, about those, those issues and, and not necessarily like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, it's probably going to be since this is for the University of Oregon audience, mostly white people listening. And uh, <laughs> we're point. being honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think it's so important to uh, not approach these issues with the defensiveness of, you know, like, well, are, are you trying to make me feel horrible about who I am as a person because I'm white, all these things, but approach it with, you know, like, I think we've both sort of tried to approach these issues with a sensitivity of like, wow, I want to be honest about, you know, what my um kind of race has done and i also want to try try and help repair in whatever way i can even if that's like you said kind of getting out of the way and allowing them to do what they need to do right and i think it's really important to be sensitive but it's also important to ask questions and not be afraid be so sensitive that you're afraid to do that because uh, the only way we can improve is to learn absolutely and my twitter handle sorry did you want to ask no no <laughs> My Twitter handle is at SM Greenstone. Uh, you need anything else? No. That's pretty much it. You guys are great. Thanks Sweet. for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're going to miss you.